Well, it's so good to see all of you here today. Welcome, by the way, to 2020. 2020. Did you ever think we'd get this far, right? I mean, man. And I turned 50 years old on Tuesday, and that's a real blessing. Let me just tell you, I've had all, all kinds of uh, wonderful well-wishers today. And so uh, it's a little discouraging. But I do want to offer my welcome to all of you who are visiting today because I know that uh, it can be an awkward and sometimes a strange experience to be in such a big room full of people. And who knows, you may not have been in church for years. Maybe you haven't even been in church since last decade. But if that's the case, don't feel bad. That's the same for all of us, right? So we're all in the same boat. None of us have been in church since 2019. I've been waiting all week to say that little joke, and it flopped. And so that's a good blessing to me. Anyway, uh, we start a brand new sermon series this day called So Much More. It's out of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. A great, great verse. We'll read it together in just a moment. But uh, it's 2020, and I mean, what a great, what a great word to start with in your booklet there, where Jonathan starts with the word vision. I want you to open that booklet up. And you'll see that the first word on there is vision. And it's because it's 2020. And we thought, well, how cool would that be to just start with 2020 vision, right? Maybe you don't have 2020 vision for physical seeing, but you know what? All of us can have a vision for what God wants in and through our lives for the year 2020. Now, this church has always been a church of vision. Our founder, Dr. Falwell, when others saw a bottling company, he saw a church that can impact the world for Christ. And go, you know, guess what? It has, right? When other people saw a, 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 a TV camera, Dr. Falwell envisioned a worldwide TV ministry that could reach literally millions of people for Christ. And guess what? It came to be. When other people saw a bunch of hills, Dr. Falwell saw what could be the world's greatest and largest and most influential Christian university on the planet. And guess what? It's happening right now. That is vision, folks. We live in a generation of one of the greatest visionaries to ever live. So we're so grateful for the vision of Dr. Falwell. But now we serve under his son, Jonathan Falwell. And Jonathan has articulated for us a vision for Thomas Road as we move into the next year. In fact, you'll see it on the first page of that booklet, five things that Jonathan listed that we're trying to accomplish this year as a church. Look at that. It's a list of five things. We want to see a 10% increase in salvation decisions, a 10% increase in baptisms, 10% increase in life group involvement, 10% increase in serving involvement, and then a 10% increase in giving. Now, can you imagine if we had a 10% increase across the board in all five of those categories, just how many lives we could see changed for the glory of God in 2020? Yes, it's, a th it's an Ephesians 3.20 type situation. In fact, I want to pull up that verse if you can, and let's just read that verse together. If you, if you want to look at it in your booklet, it's on the left-hand column there. Let's read that all together out loud. You ready? Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. See, God works within us when we live lives that are consecrated and committed to him. So the vision is clear, but it will take discipline coupled with the blessing of God to, accomplishment, to accomplish it, right? Now remember, discipline is the bridge between vision and accomplishment. Now, I'm going to give you lots of notes here that are in addition to what you have on your page, and so you might want to write these things down. In fact, that's one quote I'd really like for you to write down. I use it all the time. I heard it first from A.R. Bernard. Discipline is the bridge between vision and accomplishment. Lots of people have a vision. 
Lots of people just think about that vision and don't ever accomplish the vision, and it's because they lack one key element in their life, discipline. I like what the founder of Atari once said. He said, you know, everybody can have a big dream. In fact, everybody has a great big idea in the shower, but it's those who get out of the shower, dry off, and do something about it that end up changing the world. And that requires discipline. It is the bridge between vision and accomplishment. So today, we begin a five-week journey called So Much more. And these five weeks are going to focus on five key spiritual disciplines for our lives to ensure the promise and the presence of God in this new year and in this new decade. And so here's the five disciplines. You see them listed there in your booklet. A walk in the Word, where we're going to talk about a personal commitment to the discipline of studying the Word of God. Conversions, I mean conversations and communications, which is the discipline of prayer and fasting. The heart of gratitude, which is the discipline of having an attitude of gratitude. Faithfulness, which is our commitment to honor God with our lives. And fifthly, reaching beyond our grasp, which is the discipline of reaching others with the gospel of Christ. Now, Jonathan has chosen me to play lead-off batter here today. And so I am privileged with the opportunity to talk to you about, number one, a walk in the Word. The discipline of studying the Word of God. And you'll see there that we've got lots of blanks for you to fill in. So grab a pen or pencil or mascara or whatever you use to write things. And I want you to make sure that you fill in these blanks, all right? But before we get there, let me just give you a few interesting tidbits about the Bible itself. Folks, this is the most amazing, inspiring, and life-changing book on the planet. The greatest seller of all time. Written by the hands of faulty humans, but inspired by the heart of a flawless creator. 39 books in the Old Testament. 27 books in the New Testament, totaling 66 books together, 1,189 chapters, 31,173 verses, 773,692 words, and 3,567,180 letters. 100 million copies of the Bible are sold every year. You know, it's estimated that over 5 billion copies of the Bible have been sold since they've been counting how you sell things in stores. But that doesn't include all of the books, that the Bibles that have been given away as well. Now, the first thing I was, I was talking to my son, Cooper, and I said, he said, what are you speaking on? I said, well, Jonathan wants me to talk about just the Bible itself, just this book that we have. And he goes, well, what does Bible mean? <laughs> and I thought, you know, I really don't know. <laughs> After all these years of reading this book, I didn't know what the word Bible meant. So I looked it up. It's from the Greek term tabiblia, which means the scrolls or the books. The word is derived from the ancient city of Byblos, which was the official supplier of paper products to the ancient world. And so the word Bible simply means a collection of books. And that's exactly what it is. Now, the full Bible has been translated into 698 languages, and the New Testament has been translated into 1,548 languages. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over a period of almost 1,500 years. So from Genesis, which is written somewhere around 1400 B.C., all the way to the book of Revelation, which is written by John on the Isle of Patmos, somewhere around 90 A.D., we have this 1,500-year span of God miraculously using faulty, messed-up people to create for us His holy and perfect Word. 
There's at least 185 songs written in the Bible. And the Bible's not a single work, like I said, but a collection of works written by a wide variety of over 40 authors. Everything from shepherds to kings to farmers to fishermen to priests to poets to peasants, murderers and auditors and traitors and embezzlers and adulterers. This all-star cast of down-and-outers, failures and misfits. Isn't that just like God to use those people to give us his word? And, of course, this, this Bible has faced all kinds of, of ridicule and, and uh, it's been disregarded by all kinds of people in every generation. But somehow, some way, it just keeps living and it just keeps changing lives. It's a miraculous book. I love the story of Voltaire. He was the famous French uh, enlightened philosopher, Voltaire, and uh, he was quite adamant about the falsities of Christianity. He uh, hated the Christian religion. He could not stand the Bible. And he predicted, he predicted in 1776, and these are his words, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Well, ironically, I love this, within 50 years of his death, The very house in which he wrote those words served as a storehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts for the Evangelical Society of Geneva, and it was the printing, the very printing presses he used to print his anti-Christian works was used to print Bibles. (laughs) So today the Bible is still read by millions, and Voltaire, well, nobody gives a rip what he thinks. Now... No fragment of any army ever survived so many, Bible, so many battles as the Bible. No citadel ever withstood so many sieges. No rock has ever battered by so many hurricanes and so swept by storms. And yet the Bible stands. While nations, kings, philosophers, systems, institutions have died away, the Bible engages now men's deepest thoughts, is examined by the keenest intellects, stands revered before the highest tribunals, and is more read and sifted and debated and more devoutly loved and more vehemently assailed, more defended and more denied, more industriously translated and freely given to the world, more honored and more abused than any other book the world has ever seen, and yet it still stands. It truly is the most wonderful and powerful book known to mankind. And it's chock full of historical and archaeological facts. And the more archaeologists archaeologists dig, the more it just undermines the truth and the accuracy of the Word of God. But it's not just a history book. It's a philosophy book as well. It's also a genealogical record book. It's a textbook. It's a nonfiction book full of poetry and prose and principles and proverbs and parables. But most of all, it's God's love letter to you and me. The one thing you discover above all else when you read this book is the endless, matchless, infinite love God has for us as his people. This book right here, I have a Dr. Jeremiah study Bible right here, and Genesis 1 verse 1 starts on page 7. And when you get, when you just look at page 7 and then you turn the page, in one page we already screwed everything up. That's how quickly mankind messed this deal up. And you know what? For the next 1,860 pages in this Bible right here, God creates and weaves and tells and molds and shifts and moves the hearts of man so that we might clearly see just how much he loves us. And of course, the whole thing is climaxed by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's provided for us this book, this ultimate how-to book for you and me to learn how we're supposed to live our lives. 
So if you want to know how to lead your family, read this book. If you want to know how to run your business, read this book. If you want to know how to handle your money, read this book. You want to know what's right and wrong? You want to know the future of the world? You want to learn all about sex and the role of sex in our lives? How about the role of men and women? It's all right here in this book. How about if you want to know how to handle your possessions, deal with legal issues, structure a government, handle your debt, raise your kids, treat your parents, treat your spouse, eat the right foods, drink the right liquids, treat strangers, host guests. It's all in this book. We cannot live without this book. Within the covers of the Bible are the answers for all the problems men face, said Ronald Reagan. And then Charles Spurgeon is quoted right here in your right column over there. The more you read the Bible and the more you meditate on it, the more you will be astonished with it. And that really is true. So let's look at our key verse for the day. You'll find it in 2 Timothy first, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And let's read that together too if you want to. It says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, here's your key thought. You got your pencils ready? Physical growth is automatic. Spiritual growth is a choice. And until we get in God's word, we will never know the more that God has in store. We will never know the more that God has in store. So let's look here at the importance of God's Word, right? See, when we were little children, we relied on the nourishment and the provision of our mom and our dad. They clothed us, they fed us. But as we grow older, we become more independent. I mean, it's an awkward thing to still have to dress your 14-year-old, right? He should know how to dress himself by then. And so it is with your own spiritual walk. As a new Christian, we should rely a great deal on the wisdom and the guidance of those around us to help us grow in Him, right? But as we mature, we have to become self-feeders. We must learn how to grow as a Christian on our own, study the Word of God on our own, and worship as individuals, just not, not just in a group like here on Sunday morning. We have to learn how to dive deeper. We cannot just be feeding from the bottle of milk of the Word. We must mine the scriptures and discover the endless and riches and treasures and depths of wonder that exist beyond just the surface. And this cannot be accomplished in just a one-hour worship service per week. So if you want to discover the more that God has for you, then you have to dive deeper into his word. And so as we look at the importance of, word, of, of God's word, let me give you the first point. You can trust it. You can trust the word of God. All Scripture, in another translation, says this, was breathed out by God. It was breathed out by God. Listen to the words of John Piper. Paul tells Timothy in verse 16, not to forsake the truth of these writings because of the writings themselves are God-breathed. God influenced the writers, not simply on the mind of the writers in general, but his attention to the process of Scripture creation was such that when their minds and their hands composed the actual Scripture words, these words were so much God's words that Paul says the writings themselves were actually breathed from God. And God is trustworthy, right? 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. You see, one of the primary ways that he directs our paths is through his word. So the Bible is our instruction manual. If you follow it, it will guide you and it will change you. But our problem is, is that we always want to do this thing on our own, don't we? We insist on living life on our own terms, doing things our own way and creating our own principles and values. But the problem is that we end up doing all of that in our own wisdom and trusting ourselves rather than trusting in the wisdom and the words that he's provided for us in his scripture. And that never turns out well, does it? I don't know, I'm probably the only guy in this room like this, but um, every Christmas Eve when my kids were growing up, I was hosted with the job of uh, assisting Santa Claus uh, in uh, putting together things that Santa Claus had brought to the children. Um, and I don't know, it's just like when a big 3D item comes to my house in a flat box, that freaks me out because it always has the three worst words ever printed on a piece of paper, some assembly required. And I don't know how you are, but I am not uh, very inclined uh, mechanically, and so it takes me a long time to be able to put together anything. And so here I am, Christmas Eve, seemed like every year, and I remember one year in particular, we had this mechanical thing that the boys could drive, you know, and they could push the button, you know, it was like really drive it. It was like this uh, battery-operated little car. And I had to put together that stupid thing, I mean, that wonderful thing. And uh, let me tell you something, I, it was like three in the morning, and I thought I had the whole thing finally figured out, and I was, I was quite pleased with myself until I realized that the whole back axle was not really working at all, and I looked over, and there's a whole other set of, of screws and things that I had failed to miss, and here's why, because I got about halfway through the instruction manual and thought, okay, I got this. Can I get a witness? Anybody like that? Is anybody? Okay. All the wives are punching their husbands in the ribs right now. That's you right there. That's you. I've seen you do that a thousand times. That's exactly what happens. And, and the reason is because we left the instruction manual. And here's one thing that I have discovered about instruction manuals when I'm trying to put something together, which is not very often, by the way. But when I do, I have discovered that the instruction manual is actually there for my benefit. And here's the other good news. It's true. They're not lying to me. This is how you're supposed to do it. Well, God's Word is our instruction manual for us. These are the words of God. The one who fashioned and formed us from the moment we were conceived. He knows and He cares about every little detail of our life. You can trust His words. But secondly, His Word is not just to be trusted. It, it never changes. And please ignore my horrible handwriting. It never changes. It is true, and the truth never changes. Look at verse 16b. And it's useful to teach us what is true. The other translations say it is profitable for doctrine. See, there are absolutes. There really are absolutes, and you'll find them in Scripture. They're found in the holy writings that were passed on either orally or written testimony to young believers like, test, like Timothy. And Paul's reminding his young disciple, Timothy, to hold fast to those truths he was taught early in life. And he's reminding him that those truths are found in the Holy Scriptures. See, everything from the lessons God taught the children of Israel to the principles and Proverbs, to the words of the prophets, to the words of Christ, it's all true, and His truth never changes. But thirdly, His truth that never changes always ends up changing us. It will always change you. 
Listen to the words of Philip Brooks. You see, the Bible is like a telescope. If a man looks through his telescope, he sees worlds beyond. But if he looks at his telescope, he does not see anything but that. The Bible is a thing to be looked through to see that which is beyond. But most people only look at it, and so they see only a dead letter. See, when we begin to get serious about reading through the Bible, we discover that it is reading through us. It's the only book in the history of the world that reads us as we read it. And in the process, it changes us. Well, how does it change us? Well, it's actually all right there in verses 16 and 17 out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's six ways mentioned in this verse. All Scripture is inspired by God and is, number one, useful to teach us what is true. It teaches us what is true. Secondly, it reveals to us what is wrong in our lives. Thirdly, it corrects us when we are wrong. You see all those words right there in that verse. Fourthly, it teaches us to do what is right. Fifthly, it prepares us to be who we are supposed to be. And lastly, it equips us to do what we are supposed to do. See, that's the importance of God's Word. Well, now let's look at the power of God's Word. It is our weapon against Satan's attacks and lies. I'll give you a second to write all that. It is our weapon against Satan's attacks and lies. We fight with the Word of God as our weapon. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Paul tells us in the same chapter to put on the whole armor of God, for the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So how do we combat these things? Well, Jesus used Scripture. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came to Jesus? He was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was, hadn't eaten anything, and he was very hungry and very tired. And so Satan comes to him at Jesus' weakest point physically, and he begins to tempt him. Remember that? Three different ways in which Satan tempts Jesus. And every time Jesus uh, diverted the temptation, stood against the temptation by an answer from the word of God. So knowing and believing the Word of God is the best way to combat sin and darkness in our lives. When temptation comes, if you spent time in the Word and memorized certain passages, it's amazing how God will bring those certain passages to your heart and to your mind in the right moment when you need it most. Psalm 119.11, you've heard that verse before. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Secondly, not only does it help us fight with a weapon against Satan's attacks and lies, it also feeds our relationship with Christ. Feeds our relationship with Christ. Matthew 4, 4, back to the temptations of Christ from Satan. Jesus told him, no, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. So just as we need physical nourishment for our bodies, we need spiritual nourishment for our soul. And the Word of God does this. And you know what? The more you feed from the Word, the hunger you get for more of His Word. And no other book makes you as acquainted with Jesus than this book does. This is the book that brings your relationship with Christ to life. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34 says. And then thirdly, it focuses us, us for eternity. So it keeps us focused 
on eternity. So many verses point us toward our eternal home in heaven where we will worship God the Father forever. And uh, here's just a few there that you can read out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So the part of the, that we're studying here, the power of God's word, just as a review, it helps us fight evil, it feeds our hungry souls, and it focuses our heart on eternity. So we've looked at the importance of God's word. We've looked at the power of God's word. Now let's look at the integrity of God's word. All right. And by the word integrity, we mean completeness or wholeness. First of all, because Jesus Christ is the word. You remember those words out of John chapter one. In the beginning, the word already existed because Jesus has always been. The word was with God and the word was God. And he existed in the beginning with God. And God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Jesus is the creator of all that there is. Jesus is the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and his words have spoken, having the authority of God ever since. His parables and his teachings were written down and canonized because he was God in the flesh speaking these words. And then at his departure, he sent it to us, the Holy Spirit, to dwell inside of us. And his Holy Spirit spoke into the hearts and the minds and the prophets and the apostles to bring us this infallible word of God. Paul even referred to Paul's, I mean, Peter referred to Paul's letters as scripture because his words were, and I love this phrase, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ is the word. And secondly, the word is living and active. Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. It's a powerful two verses. It says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he's the one to whom we are accountable. You didn't know you came to church naked today, did you? But it really is true. God sees every attitude and thought and motive and every part of us he knows about. And that's why I think Mark Twain said this. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. And that's true because the more you read scripture, the more it reads you and you begin to get convicted over things because it's cutting and it's revealing and it's healing and it's taking the parts out of us that don't need to be there so that we can further live lives closer to him. See, his word is alive. And that's why every time you open it and read it, he speaks to you in a different way. 10,000 teachers could teach the same passage in 10,000 different ways because it is so rich and it is so deep. All of us in this room could take the same verse and meditate on it and God would teach us all something uniquely different as it applies to our own lives. The book is simply amazing. It's living and active and teaching and shaping and changing all of us. Generation follows generation, and yet it lives. Nations rise and fall, and yet it lives. Kings and dictators and presidents, they come and go, and yet it lives. It's been doubted. It's been condemned. It's been scoffed at. It's been exaggerated, been misconstrued, ranted and raved about. It's inspiration denied, and yet it still lives. And it lives as a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path, as a standard for our childhood, as a guide for our youth, as an inspiration for the matured, as a comfort for the aged, as food for the hungry, as water for the thirsty, 
as rest for the weary. It lives as light for the lost, as a map for the mercy. And it lives as a guide to grace. And to know it is to love it. To love it is to accept it. And to accept it means life eternal with the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, we've looked at the integrity of God's word. Lastly, in this section, the word is living and active, but the word is also the roadmap of the way. The roadmap of the way. What way? Jesus' way. The way to salvation. The way to life. John chapter 14, 6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. See, the Bible is our GPS system to a life well lived. It will point you the direction you need to go. And it does so with flawless integrity and you don't even, uh, even when you don't know which way to go or what to do. Uh, on the evening of July 16th of 1999, at precisely 8.38 p.m., John F. Kennedy Jr. took off from Essex County Airport, New Jersey, en route to Martha's Vineyard to attend a cousin's wedding for the following day. But in just a little over an hour, at 9.41 p.m., John Kennedy's Piper Saratoga had crashed nose first into the Atlantic Ocean. Do you remember hearing this story, being, watching that unfold? Well, the official investigation concluded that Mr. Kennedy had fallen victim to what's called spatial disorientation while he was descending over water at night, and he consequently lost control of his plane. Kennedy did not hold an instrument rating, and therefore he was only certified to fly under visual flight rules. And at the time of the crash, the weather and light conditions were such that all basic landmarks were obscured, making visual flight challenging, although legally still permissible. So he simply could not see the horizon at night over the open ocean and was disoriented to the point where he was flying straight into the water without even knowing it. The haziness had clouded his vision. See, Kennedy's lack of flying experience and instrument training was what led to his tragic death. He may well have been trusting in what he thought he was seeing more than what his instrument panel was actually telling him. How many of us live our lives in the same way? We live with our own sort of philosophy and set our own principles and our own guidelines and when all the while God has such a better plan and because we lack the wisdom of God and because sin can blind us so badly, we live with this sort of spatial disorientation. Yet God has provided for us all that we need to guide us on how to live our lives. It's called the Bible. And the Bible is our instrument panel. And it's the Bible that teaches us to walk by faith, not by sight. We must learn to trust in the words of this book like you would a GPS system or an instrument panel or a road map. And in those days in your life where you can't seem to see the horizon, look to his word. His words are what will bring you comfort in your despair. So we've looked at the importance of God's word. We've looked at the power of God's word. We've looked at the integrity of God's word. Now let's look at one more, our commitment to God's word. We need to hear God's word. Hear God's word word. Romans 10, 14 through 17 says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? 
And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah, the prophet, said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing, and that is hearing the good news about Christ. Other translations say faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Hearing the Word of God grows our faith. And there are so many ways in this day and age where you can hear the Word of God constantly throughout the day. You can have an app read the Bible to you. You can have your iPad. I I hear the Bible all the time in the mornings because when my wife gets up, she plays the Bible out loud as she's getting ready for the day, and you just hear Scripture ringing through the house. And it's just an app. It's free. Uh, You can also listen to podcasts that are free. I was listening to one of the most amazing messages on the Bible this morning on the way in. Check out Alistair Begg's sermon from January 3rd, 2020. I mean, uh, 2020, it's just, it's not a message he preaches, it's his podcast. But check it out because it will bless you. It's on his radio um, podcast called uh, Truth for Living. And it's a powerful word. I was listening to the word of God as I came in. You can do it in so many different ways. Through your iPad. You can hear it quoted in worship songs like we did today as you drive down the road. So many ways you can hear God's word. But don't just hear it. Read it. We need to read God's word. Joshua 1.8 says this. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to be, obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. Now this takes discipline. It takes time. It takes a plan. And there's so many resources and plans out there that you can use. But I think one goal for all of us should be to try to read the Bible all the way through each year. You should try that this year. Look, if you haven't started, it's just the fifth. You can catch up pretty quickly. It takes about 10 to 12 minutes a day, and I promise you it will change your life. And I believe it's best to start your day with it, honestly. I think if you can work out in your schedule to start your day in the Word of God, it will totally change how you approach the entire day the rest of the time. I mean, there's nothing like filling your mind with the Word of God at the beginning of the day. I think, I think it's a great combination, a cup of coffee and the Word of God. Java and Jehovah. It's the breakfast of champions, all right? Jehovah Java, yeah. (laughs) So thirdly, we need to study God's Word. Study God's Word. It's one thing to hear it, another thing to read it, but then if you really want to dive deep, you got to start studying the Word of God. Acts 17, 11, the people of Berea were more more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. And they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were telling the truth. When I was in college, I had this professor, and, uh, and he was kind of liberal. And things he would teach us were not things that I were taught. And so every time I'd sit in that classroom after the class, I would go to the library and search the scriptures and search the commentaries to see what I was going to believe about this particular passage. And it really, really helped me to determine exactly where I stand on doctrine. And I would encourage you to study God's Word. Get a devotional as a companion, but make sure you crack open this book and read it. And here's, here's how I do it. You can do it in a variety of different ways, but just to help you, uh, this is how I do it, okay? I, after my daily one-year Bible reading, because I try to go through the Bible every year, I like to take a smaller passage and study it like a, a parable of Christ. 
Or I might pick a word like grace or, or worship or mercy and explore that. Or I may take a subject like angels or, or miracles and dive a little deeper. And you can do this easily with, the, with a concordance. Many of you have a concordance in the back of your Bible. You just look up the word that you're wanting to study, and it'll give you a listing of every verse related to that word. The Bible helps you study it if you just look. All right? And it never hurts to read commentaries online also. They're free. You can read them like crazy. And I would highly recommend a study Bible. This is Dr. Jeremiah's study Bible here. There's many different versions. And it's incredible. And then as you read, I would encourage you to consider these four things. And this is not in your notes, but if you want to jot them down, it may help you. Consider these four things as you study the Bible. Number one, what's the context? Historically, culturally, what's happening around you? What is going on in this scripture that give you an idea for why these people are doing what they're doing and what God is doing through the process of this historical moment? And then secondly, what's the big idea of the passage? What's it saying? How does it relate to other passages of Scripture? How does it relate in the context of all of Scripture? All right? So what's the context? What's the big idea? Thirdly, what's the obvious lesson? Most of the time, there's a pretty obvious lesson in Scripture that just jumps out of the page. What is it? Ask yourself these questions. And then fourthly, what's the personal lesson? Are there certain words that stick out? What is the Holy Spirit trying to say to you. Now, in order for you to do all this, you got to get in a quiet place and get alone with God. Shut off the noise. Just get by yourself. And you'll discover a whole new world of spiritual growth, and you will learn to cherish these moments daily. John Rockefeller said this, you're never too old to study the Bible. Each time the lessons are studied comes across some new meaning, some new thought, which will make us better. So study the Bible in one more way, like you would a love letter how many remember grade school and junior high when you used to get love letters from you? Listen, man, in junior high, and I told my wife, confessed to my wife last night, I said, I'm going to mention the names of several, several girls that I had a crush on in junior high. I'm just putting, you know, just getting you prepared. I mean, there was Sally Meyer. There was Susie. There was Dana. I liked them all, but I never got letters from any of them. And then there was one girl I liked a lot, and her name was Joni, and she's the first one that ever liked me back. And I'll never forget that first note I got from Joni. And I cherished it, and I read it a thousand times, and I would read it this way and read it that way. Of course, it took me 15 minutes to open it because she had it folded in some weird origami sort of crazy way that, you know, you remember how they used to, you know, this whole thing. And I finally got it open. I read the whole thing, and, I, and, I, and then I would question, what does she mean by this? Okay, what's the tone of this? What's her heart behind this? And that's exactly the way we are to read the Bible. Look at it as though it's God's love letter straight to your heart heart. And it sums it up best in John 3, 16. We, the word says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then fourthly, we need to memorize God's word. There's that verse again, Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You're never too young or too old to memorize Scripture. It's not only good for you, it will come to mind in troubling times. So it's best that you have a plan to do this on a weekly basis. Here's my plan, one verse a week. That's about all my little brain can handle. One verse a week. My verse of this week, Ephesians 3.20. It is the, 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 the backdrop of this entire sermon series. So maybe that's a good one for you to start with. But I might add one more, one more to this, and that's this. It's good also to meditate on God's Word. 
See, some scripture is difficult and deep to grasp. And as Tim Keller says, some scripture is like hard candy. If you just bite down on it, you get little out of it, and it may even break your teeth. Instead, you must meditate on it until the sweetness of insight comes. Here's one thing I know. God did not provide his word for us so that we would be confused by it or wouldn't understand it. He wants us to know his heart, his wisdom, and his promises. So spend time meditating on the word of God. And lastly, we need to obey God's word. Obey God's word. James 1.22, but don't listen to God. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. We must be doers of the word, not hearers only, as James says. It's one thing to listen to a message or even read your Bible daily, but the message of the word is meant to be fleshed out in our everyday lives. Our lives must be a living testimony of how we have been changed by the love of Jesus. D.L. Moody said this, where one man reads the Bible, a hundred read you and me. And it's true. You really are the only Jesus many will ever see. You're the only Bible that many will ever read. Millions of lives have been changed for eternity because of this blessed book. And when we get to heaven, we will have the privilege of hearing those testimonies and even telling our own. But as we close today, can I just tell you the testimony of one man that ended up changing the world? His name was Augustine. He was born in 354 A.D., shortly after all of this stuff was written. 354 A.D. in northern Africa. His mom was a wonderful Christian believer. But Augustine grew up pretty rebellious. He didn't believe any of this stuff. In fact, he was, a, uh, he was uh, pretty, pretty against the whole idea. And he was a skeptic. And as he was teaching college courses on rhetoric and, and philosophy and these kind of things, he questioned all of this stuff related to Scripture. And yet, within him, he had, in his words, two wills struggling inside him, one drawing him to God's love, and then one pulling him away to his own lusts and desires. And for years, he went the way of his lusts and desires. He was living a life full of sin. And yet, when he turned 30, God got a hold of his heart and began to wrestle with all of this. And at this time, Augustine realized his own wickedness. And in his words, he said, And now you set me face to face with myself, that I might see how ugly I was and how crooked and sordid and bespotted and ulcerous. And I looked and I loathed myself. Maybe that's you today. You look at yourself in the mirror and you don't like who you are. You don't like who you've become. Augustine was the same way. This change in Augustine's esteem of himself led him to the understanding that he must repent and turn from his sins in order to become a Christian. So he's caught in this endless battle between two wills, and one day he's walking through a courtyard with his friend Olympias, and Olympias was a believer, and Olympias had a copy of the Scriptures with him, and Augustine is just tormented through this, and he, he is just fighting. He's fighting this war in his soul. And he doesn't know what to do, and he's very frustrated, and it finally comes to the point where he just falls on the ground, and he cries out to God, and he says, how long, O Lord, will I go through this? He said, I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I don't know which, coming from a neighboring house, and they were chanting over and over again these words, pick it up, read it, pick it up read it. 
He said, so all I knew to do was go back to my friend Olympias, and I grabbed the scriptures from it, and I just tore open a page. And he said, and I just happened to look down at this verse, Romans 13, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in this day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And it was that verse that broke Augustine. This is the verse that God used for him, later known as Saint Augustine. But what verses has he used to break you? to encourage you, to bless you. I can tell you this, you'll never know what treasures await your soul unless you pick it up and read it. It's God's redemptive plan for you and me. And he didn't even fold it in some weird origami way. It's just right here, delivered for us. Pick it up, read it. I promise you this, it'll change your life. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we give you honor and we give you glory and we give you praise and we give you thanks for your word. It is truly living and active and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. And our prayer, God, is that it would penetrate the hearts and the minds of individuals in this room even now so that, Lord, those who don't know you would come to know you. Those who've walked away or questioned this whole thing would come to find the truth of your word, and that, Lord, you would change us all. And God, maybe there's individuals in this room, Lord, and, and we've been Christians for years, and, and yet we've been coming here for 20-some-odd years, and yet we don't know any more about your Bible than what's simply been taught to us on Sunday morning, and that's it. And most of the time, that goes in one ear and out the other. God, break us of that. And then there are others in this room, Lord. We, we, we know your word, and yet we don't flesh it out. We don't live it because there's not a conviction in our heart. God, help us to fall so in love with you and your word that we would live every moment for your glory, for your honor. God, 2020 is upon us, and it's brand new time, brand new time to just start all over. God, our prayer is that as we sing this little chorus today, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh God, how it is so good to trust in your holy word. But Lord, as we sing this little chorus, I pray that you would break us. God, if there's folks in this room who don't know you, I pray they'd come to know you. And for those of you who are in this room and you're struggling and you've walked away from the Lord, oh, can I just remind you? And it's all over his word. God is a God of new beginnings. He hasn't turned his back on you. He's waiting patiently for you to come back to him. His arms are open wide, and he says these words in his scripture, come unto me. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're broken, if you're lost, come to him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So as we stand quietly together with our heads bowed, I'm just going to ask God if he would to sing that song over us. And if you know it, sing along. But more than anything, I just want to ask you to do business with God in your heart before we leave. Let the words of his scripture, let the still small voice of his Holy Spirit speak to your heart. If you want to come down to this aisle and give your life to Christ, take one of these pastors by the hand and simply say that. Man, will you introduce me to Jesus? That's all you got to say. 
And then others of you who've just been struggling with a, a life to really live for Him. You know you're a believer, but man, there's just stuff's not right. Come, come to the altar. What better time to make things right with you and your God than on the first Sunday of 2020, all right? So while we sing, the altar's open. Come on. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us here today. You know, at Thomas Road Baptist Church, since our very beginning, back in 1956, we've been about one thing and one thing only, and that is to bring the message of hope that comes through Jesus Christ to the world. And today, my friends, we recognize we live in a world that's messed up. We live in a world that's full of division and conflict and pain and sorrow. But Jesus came to this world not to bring division and sorrow, but to bring joy, to bring peace to bring hope. And today, that's the message that we want to share with you. And if you're watching this and you've never had the opportunity of, of connecting with him at that level, of understanding what it is that Jesus came to do, then I encourage you and I want to let you know the greatest news you'll ever hear. And that's this, God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. In fact, he gave his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and for my sins, to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. What an amazing gift that really is. God loves you. Christ died for you. But three days later, he rose again. And when he came out of that grave, he gives us victory over sin, over Satan, over the grave. He gives us the hope for eternity. But according to God's word, it's very clear. What we must do is believe. We must believe that Jesus is the son of God. We must believe that he died and that he rose again. And if we do that, according to Romans 10, 13, anyone, that means you, it means me, it means every person that has ever lived, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I encourage you today to recognize that hope that comes through Jesus. And if you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, do so today, believing that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said that he did, calling on his name, and it'll change everything. That is the message that we share. It's a message that we want to take to the entire world. And today I would encourage you to connect with us, maybe even financially through a gift that you can help us to take this message around the world. I encourage you today to stand with us as we stand with truth, as we stand with hope to let the world know God loves us.